Today, I will be speaking to Stephanie Ray, who is the non-executive chair of the Mammal Society. Welcome to the Think Wildlife Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. A lot of your work has revolved around bats. So what has got you so interested in bats? I think I've been interested in bats since I was at university. I went to university with a, a, a big lake on campus. And at night, you could watch the Dorbenton's bats uh, flying really low over the water and feeding. And, and I think I got interested then and then went on to study them um, throughout my PhD and, and postdoc. Why are bats so crucial for the ecosystem? Well, bats can, can carry out all kinds of roles in ecosystems, depending on where in the world we're talking about. They can be pollinators, they can be seed dispersers. In the UK, where I'm based, we, we only have insect-eating bats, and, um, and they're really important. You know, we, we, we enjoy the, the benefits we get from them in terms of pest control, for example. <laughs> they eat thousands of mosquitoes in a night, so, you know, they... they they function there in, in the sort of food web. Can you please elaborate on your postdoc project with the Livingstone's bats in Comores? Yeah, um, this was a project we started about 30 years ago now, um, which was to study Livingston's, Livingston's bat, which is one of the largest fruit bats in the world. Um, it was very endangered. It still is endangered. At the time, its population was down to maybe 100 individuals or so. It's up to probably around 800, 900 individuals now. Um, and we were there really to, to understand its ecology and to try to figure out why it was struggling so much and how it was becoming so rare when the other bat on the islands, the Seychelles fruit bat, was doing so well. So it was a it was a study around their ecology, what habitats they used, what foods they were eating, you know, whether there were any particular pressures on on the Livingston's bat. And as part of that project, we worked with Jersey Zoo uh, and actually caught uh, some some bats to start a breeding colony back in Jersey and Bristol, um, which meant that we knew that the, that the species would be safe from extinction. One more mammal species which has got a lot of conservation attention recently are the red squirrels. So why are these species so endangered and what is being done to revive this population? Yeah, I mean, red squirrels have, have been uh, declining for, for many decades and that's really been due to the introdu introduction of grey squirrels, which are a non-native species. And... Um, the grey squirrels are slightly bigger and, and tougher than the red squirrels. Um, so they can outcompete them for food. They, they breed more effectively in certain types of woodland. And they also carry a, a disease, a parapox virus, that, that can infect and, and kill the red squirrels. So very slowly over decades, the greys have been sort of marching north and are, are sort of restricting the reds to... Um, Scotland, parts of Wales and some islands. So it's it's been a long-standing conservation problem in the UK and there's been lots of work done on that and lots of work on selective squirrel feeders and grey squirrel control and so forth. Uh, an interesting project that we're working on at the Mammal Society at the moment with the University of Bristol, sponsored by Huawei and working with the, the Rainforest Connection, is looking at acoustic monitoring for squirrels. So we're actually 
listening into the soundscapes in the woodlands up in the north of England and being able to pick out um, red squirrel calls, grey squirrel calls, interactions between the two, looking at their behaviour at different densities of the two species of squirrels. And the researchers at Bristol are hoping to develop that into a really effective monitoring technique and a kind of almost an early warning for red squirrel strongholds under pressure. So are there grey squirrels, which other species of mammals have been introduced in the UK and what has been the impact of these introduced species? Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? When is a species introduced? Because, we, you know, many of, our, many of our mammals that are very familiar that we see all the time uh, and almost never as native have been introduced. So, for example, rabbits are introduced to the UK um, and rabbits have had good and bad effects on the ecosystem. You know, when, when rabbits' numbers can get very high because of their burrowing, they can cause damage. So we have concerns about, them, for example, on railways or road embankments where they might cause any subsidence of the, of the banks. But on the other side of the coin, um, uh, rabbits have been very good for uh, certain species of invertebrates. Rabbits are really great at, at grazing a very short grass sward is beneficial for some species of rare plants, for some invertebrates, and we've seen a relationship between rabbit grazed chalk grassland and the well-being of the, the large, large blue butterfly, for example. So, you know, we've got to we've got to consider where we think we draw the line. But but some mammals that have been introduced and caused problems, we typically think of mink introduced. Um, uh, you know, escapees from fur farms and so forth, um, and Koipu in East Anglia, both of which had effects on our native um, freshwater mammals, including water voles, and there have been some very effective eradication programs such that there are no, there are no wild living Koipu in the UK anymore. Excuse me. One of the most recent um, sort of non-native introductions, if you like, has been the greater white-toothed shrew, which has recently been identified in the north of England. And um, it, that's a problem. We don't know how it got there. We don't know how it was introduced, but it's, we, we've seen one dead sample of it, which has been DNA tested. And now we're searching for further samples in, in owl pellets. And, and we're asking people to send us photographs if they've seen a shrew. Um, and that, that's important because when it was introduced to Ireland, it very quickly re replaced the native pygmy shrew. So this is the concern really with, with, with non-native invasive species is when they actually take over from and replace the native mammals that we have, which is obviously one of those pressures on biodiversity loss. Also, currently the UK has an overpopulation of deers. What impact has this had on the ecosystem? Yeah, um, when you have too many grazing animals um, and there are no top predators available to regulate that population, then you do get a pressure on, on the vegetation, obviously. So if you have a lot of deer, you tend to get a lot of, of grazing and browsing of forestry. So there can be some economic problems uh, relating to um, uh, relating to commercial forestry 
Um, but you can also get damage to trees, including, a, you know, woodland of conservation value. Um, and of course, we, we don't have any top predators in the UK. We don't have lynx or wolves anymore, haven't had for a very long time. Uh, and so um, this role of regulating deer populations has sort of fallen to humans. And there are great debates about the, the rights and wrongs of, of how we how we control those populations. Another issue with deer, of course, is that we, we, we have a couple of um, invasive introduced species, including Reeves muntjac, which was introduced in the east of England um, over a hundred years ago, and, um, and is now over a huge proportion of England. So it's a, it's a very small deer, it's quite cryptic, it's solitary, so it spreads quite quickly without people necessarily noticing it's there until it reaches a certain population density. But again, they're likely to be competing for niches with our native roe deer. And, you know, it's disrupting the balance of, of what, what a natural ecosystem in, in British lowlands might look like. What are some solutions to tackle this overpopulation? And do you think, Green, do you think large predators like the Eurasian lynx and the grey wolf are a feasible solution? Um, right. Uh, grey wolves, um, I would suggest that we don't have large enough areas of wilderness left in the UK at the moment to even consider reintroducing wolves. Um, uh, they, wolves range over huge territories and, you know, there would just be so much interaction with humans with people's sheep farms and so forth and i can imagine that the the relationships would not be good and it would be very difficult to do that um uh eurasian lynx we could there are possibly one or two sites in in the british isles where that might be possible and i think that would be a really interesting thing to explore in the future but with any reintroduction, we need to be really mindful of what are the risks. We need to be sensitive to other users of the land and um, have great consultation and, and stakeholder engagement processes. We need to be conscious of the risk of introducing diseases. So those any animals that are reintroduced need to be disease screened. Um, it's, it's a really complex and, and problematic area. So whilst yes there are there are good ecological reasons why you might want to re-establish a natural ecological balance with a natural food web um there there are a lot of issues to actually get us there safely and effectively uh talking about reintroducing species so in the uk two particular species have been reintroduced quite successfully one is the beaver and the other is the bison can you talk about why the reintroduction of these two species is so significant and how has it impacted the ecosystem? Okay, well, uh, let, let's start with beavers. Um, beavers are a native species to the UK and they are currently classified as endangered. So we have tiny populations of beavers in, in the wild. It's really, um, they're really valuable species. They're, you know, we, we, we talk about them as being nature's engineers. They're, they're modifying habitats. They're really helping with natural flood protection. And as we see 
the benefit, uh, as, as we see the impacts of climate change, we'll start to see the benefits of that, that sort of approach to natural flood management, the sort of um, using a floodplain approach and a, a nature-based solution rather than building sort of hard flood defense walls and so forth. So um, we're starting to see that. We've been, we've been seeing some of the first natural, if you like, wild beaver dams in the UK recently for many, many years, which is great to see. Um, and as that process continues, um, it's in its, its very early days. Again, this process of reintroducing beavers, allowing them to spread naturally. We, you know, we're gonna be following that with interest, but you know, my personal opinion is it can only be beneficial. It's great to it's great to see a native species back, adding value, helping deliver ecosystem services in the wild in the UK. Um, in terms of, of bison, that's a <laughs> that's a slightly a slightly smaller story, if you like. You know, this is just a a small reintroduction in Kent as part of a rewilding project. Now it's 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 an, an interesting project to see. It's effectively um it's effectively a, a contained area we're not expecting that you know naturalized bison will will start wandering out across the whole of kent and and um and re repopulating the uk um but used in that way in in rewilded areas in more wilderness areas they do have great impacts on the habitats around them um they they you know, similarly, I suppose in the way I've been talking about beavers, help the forest to be more natural and biodiverse. Um, and so it's it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting um, experiment. And I'm really happy to to see that happen. And and it's great to to just sort of observe what what sort of wild roaming species do in a woodland and how a woodland might function when it's managed well it's not managed by people i suppose where it's where it's allowed to develop in a way that it would have done traditionally over thousands of years moving on to more of the mammals trust's work you guys do a lot of research with smaller mammals such as otters voles and harvest mouse what have been your observations from these surveys and okay um at the moment, we're carrying out national survey at the Mammal Society um, for otters. That we've just finished the, the first year of survey data there. So we're just pulling together all the, the results. So there'll be press releases on that later on in the year. Um, but what we've been trying to do is to look at how, how otter are faring in river systems all over England. Um, we've been doing some interesting research on water voles, modelling their populations in East Anglia and building that out to a national population model to see, you know, what, what a restored population of water voles might look like and how we might develop that. But our most recent survey that's really just underway and, and um, we finished our first year of surveying is for harvest mice. Now, harvest mice are... Uh, probably quite good indicators of the health of our agricultural landscape. You know, quite often when we look at conservation, people tend to talk, talk about the, the wild areas and the, the areas that are specially protected, you know, the triple SIs and SACs and so forth. But actually, what when we're looking at biodiversity, when we want to know how 
biodiversity, how nature is doing generally, we need to look at the wider landscape, all of that land. And of course, in, in Britain, around 70% of our land area is used for farming, for agriculture or silviculture or some form of, of managed landscape. Um, and harvest mice are a really good indicator of how healthy those landscapes are for biodiversity, because if you're putting in a lot of inputs of pesticides and herbicides, if you're ploughing right up to the edges, if you're grubbing out hedgerows and field boundaries and you've just got large arable prairies and wire fences, then you're not going to have any harvest mice. Um, when you're putting some of those features back, when you've got more diverse field edges, um, when you've got times that the the hedges will be left undisturbed during the breeding season, then you're going to start to get harvest mice and indeed other small mammals and birds and invertebrates. And, and so the harvest mice survey for us is really important in understanding the general health of our countryside and being able to, to sort of not only predict how biodiverse different areas of agricultural land will be, but also to make recommendations for how we can manage the countryside better in the future. How can people as individuals contribute to the mammal society and mammal conservation as a whole in the UK? Well, there are, there are lots of things you can do. You can get involved in one of our surveys, for example. There are lots of training sessions that will teach you how to spot harvest mouse nests, for example, and you can go out and do surveys and get involved in that on the ground research that's actually helping to save wildlife. Um, you can join a local mammal group and um, go to events. They, they do uh, meetings where they go out and look for different mammals and they have talks and so forth. You can join the Mammal Society as a member and come along to our annual conference and hear about lots of different scientific mammal research that's going on and see how you might want to get involved. Um, but if you want to help biodiversity generally, uh, mammals and all other kinds of biodiversity, then you can do things like if you have a garden, letting part of it be a little bit wild, you can, um, you can join a local conservation volunteering group and go out and, and do practical things like scrub management and so forth. So there are lots of different ways to get involved in conservation. And you know, given that the natural environment is what we all rely on for everything we need, like clean water and clean air, then, you know, I'd encourage everyone to give a little bit back to that. Moving on to your personal career. So you have also worked as a biodiversity consultant for 25 years. So what exactly is the of a consultant in the field of ecology and biodiversity conservation? Okay. Uh, well, Ecological consultants can do lots of different things. So some elements are much more field-based. So some staff, particularly possibly early on in their careers, are quite field-based. So going out and doing surveys for badgers or bats or waterfalls or whatever it might be. And then quite often that's in the context of development. So where a development is proposed, doing surveys and carrying out ecological impact assessments to understand what the effects of that infrastructure might be on populations of, of wildlife. Um, and, but more recently, and, and certainly what I do in my, in my day job, if you like, um, we're looking not just at, at developments, but much wider at 
impacts on biodiversity. So advising landowners, for example, on managing their estates to benefit biodiversity or working with companies to look at what their impacts are on the natural world and how they rely on the natural world for things like water or, or things that they harvest directly from nature and helping companies sort of track back through their supply chain to see if they use a particular raw material like, like wood or paper or pulp, you know, where does that come from? Are those forests being managed sustainably? And so there, there are whole different different routes of careers. And it's, it's really interesting that I guess the career of an ecological consultant probably didn't exist more than about 30 years ago. And now it's, you know, it's really quite significant. There are probably several thousand of them in the UK. What advice would you give to people seeking a career in, in consultancy? If, if you want to start a career in ecological consultancy, I'd say it is quite competitive. Uh, but the most important thing is to have that genuine interest in wildlife and nature and that's going to come through in your cv from the things you've been doing in your spare time so yes obviously things are competitive so having a good degree is going to be important and a relevant degree uh, but but equally important really if you want to be an ecological consultant is seeing that you've you know you're a member of the local bat group you you're working towards your bat license maybe or you go out and do badger surveys in your spare time or you're a botanist and you you know you like to go out and identify plants in the summertime in your spare time you know getting the feeling that this isn't just a, something you've suddenly decided is a useful career that you could follow um, with the degree you have but actually a genuine interest is really important because learning all of that stuff, being able to identify plants in different habitats up and down the UK or being able to spot the signs of different British mammals out in the field is a real skill and it takes a while to learn. It's going to be much more likely that you'll do it and you'll be good at it if you're showing signs that you're trying to do it already. So you know, don't underestimate the sort of external activities. Doesn't need to be anything formal. I'm not looking for people who you know, have done unpaid internships or anything like that. I'm, I'm looking for a genuine interest that that's what you choose to do in your spare time. You know, if, if, I, um, if I hear that you're a bird ringer or you go bird watching in your spare time, then I know that the job is going to interest you because the job's quite tough. You know, you're out in all weathers, you know, climbing up mountains and sitting in the cold watching birds or whatever it might be. Uh, and so, you know, you've really got to love that or you're not going to stick it out. Uh, you also founded a Nature Positive. So what exactly do you do at Nature Positive and what is your long-term vision for this? Well, Nature Positive is a, a consultancy that works with companies rather than projects and, and environmental impact assessment. We work with companies to look at their sustainability strategies. We help big organizations to become more sustainable. So we look at how much water they're using, we look at their carbon footprint and we look at their biodiversity impacts and we help them understand where those impacts are, how they may be a risk to the environment and how that, that impact could be a risk to their business, either a risk in terms of their reputation and their social license to operate or a risk of being able to get funded or a risk of being able to get the supply of the raw material that they rely on. Um, and then we work out all of those sort of hotspots that are of a concern to the business and we, we develop plans and practical strategies 
to help them reduce that. So we're, we're working to actively make big companies and financial institutions more sustainable. So that was my final question for this interview. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, no, it's been lovely to talk to you, Anish.